Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and turn again to the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46, our text this morning. Title of the message, Jesus Takes the Cup. Now, last Sunday, we examined the first portion of this chapter, and it was the portion of the Gospels in which Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. In fact, the title of last week's message was The Essential Elements of the Supper. Modeling for his disciples and for every future generation of Christians, including ours, Jesus exhibited thankfulness. He enjoyed fellowship around the Lord's Supper, um, but he also had a great deal of anticipation of the future glory when he would take of that meal in heaven with all the saints. He also had a warning. He left them that night with the warning to those who pretended to be his followers but were not. Now, all four of those elements are essential in the proper understanding of the Lord's Supper. And to help us to remember those truths, Jesus gave us two symbols in the supper. The bread, which of course represents his body that in just a few hours would be broken. And also, he is the bread of life. He sustains us through our intimacy and our fellowship with him. And then there was, of course, the cup. And the cup uh, was filled with the fruit of the vine, which was the color of blood and its intent was to remind us of the high cost of our sin and the great love wherewith he loved us when he poured out his blood. And he was just hours away, by the way, from the carrying out of that symbolism literally at the cross. Well, this morning when I speak of Jesus taking the cup, I'm not talking about the cup of the Lord's Supper, I'm not talking about the Passover cup evening. Uh, I'm talking about a cup that he could not share with anyone. Now, the supper would have gone deep into the evening that night. And in verse 39 here in Luke 22, the, shift, the scene shifts away from that borrowed upper room to the Mount of Olives. Uh, they concluded the meal, certainly by singing the Hallel Psalm, which was traditionally done by Jewish families. And then they left that borrowed room and proceeded outside the walls of the city. And we pick up in verse 39. And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And we arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him and being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And he rose from prayer. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. Now this is of course a very famous and often quoted and preached on passage of scripture. And I find many Christians are troubled by this passage, specifically one verse, verse 42, which says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Now, this verse ought not to trouble us, and I'm going to show you why, hopefully, before this sermon ends today. Um, but here is how this passage is traditionally taught. It's traditionally taught as a model for prayer. 
Uh, Jesus prayed fervently and intently and uh, to the point of physical exhaustion. And we're often called upon by pastors and well-meaning teachers to, to take this as a model for our own prayer. We're taught in this passage how to battle temptation through prayer. I think Jesus brought that inner circle close to him so that they could see the struggle that he was going through spiritually. Sometimes this passage is preached against laziness. That uh, They show um, the disciples falling asleep when they should be awake praying. Uh, sometimes it's viewed through the lens of the importance of submission, how even Jesus submitted his will to the Father. And uh, even further, it's taught to show the two natures of Christ, his human nature and his divine nature on display. I think all of those are legitimate. Uh, and we could go and attack this sermon from any of those directions, I think, and be on sound biblical ground. But I, I don't want to do any of those today. In fact, I just want you to concentrate this morning on one verse, really on one word. And that word is found in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. The title of the message is Jesus takes the cup. Now, first of all, we want to look at the contents of the cup. Luke says here that it was his custom to go out to the Mount of Olives in the evening. Last summer, when we were studying through the book of Daniel, we saw that when Daniel faced a difficult decision, he went to the Lord in prayer. But I pointed out at the time, he did not have to fundamentally change his daily schedule to do so. He was in the custom of going up to his prayer chamber, opening the windows towards Jerusalem and praying three times a day. And so when he had something of great importance to pray about, he didn't have to change his lifestyle. That's true of Jesus here. It was his custom to pray regularly. If you read the four gospels, by the way, all four gospel writers have this account in their gospels. Throughout his ministry, Jesus would often steal away from his disciples, usually early in the morning or late at night for times to be alone with the Lord. I hope it's your custom on a daily basis to spend time with the Lord. It was Jesus' custom. He would go out of the city and he would go to the Mount of Olives and the disciples were following him. And Luke says, when he arrived at the place. Now the other three gospel writers tell us the name of that place. It was called the Garden of Gethsemane. Oftentimes wealthier people who lived within the walls of Jerusalem had a garden outside the walls on the Mount of Olives where they could go and spend time with nature and pray. And Jesus apparently had befriended the owner of this garden and he had made it available to him while he was in the city of Jerusalem. They were likely spending the night there. They had protection there and it was a, a nice place to, to go away from the crowds. And so it was his custom to do that day by day. Now the scripture says in, in other places that uh, by this time there were 11 disciples. Judas had gone to betray Jesus. Jesus left eight of the disciples at the gate and then he took his three inner disciples further in and then from them he went a stone's throw away, probably 30 or 40 yards. They could hear him praying. They could see the agony on his face, but they could not participate in it because this was a cup he had to drink alone. Now let's look at this word cup for a second. When a child is learning to read, when they're four or five years old, I found that usually the first words they learn to sight read are monosyllabic three-letter nouns, right? Dog, cat, cup. Because every child can recognize a dog or a cat and every one of them has a, a drinking cup that's their favorite. And so it's very tangible and it helps them 
on that road uh, to literacy. Um, well, here is a meaning of the small word cup in the English language that carries great significance. When a child hears the word cup, they just think something to hold their juice in. But in the Bible, when the Bible speaks of a cup, it usually bears great um, meaning behind it. Now, now, let's look at the word cup as it's used in the Bible. Certainly, there are plenty of times in the Bible in the historical narratives where the word cup is used just for a cup, something to drink from. So-and-so picked up the cup and drank. But many times in the Bible, particularly in prophecy and particularly in eschatology, the word cup is used with great symbolic meaning. For example, uh, in the Psalms, which is not prophecy, but, but uh, poetry, David uses the word cup very symbolically, the 23rd Psalm. He's talking about the Lord's provision and care for him as his shepherd. And then he, as he's thinking back over his life and seeing how God had poured blessing after blessing in his life, he says, my cup does what? Runneth over, spills over the sides. God has blessed me so much that I can't contain it in one lifetime. And so it's spilling over the sides. Now that's a rarity. Almost always in the Bible, where the, the word cup is used symbolically, it's negative. It has to do with wrath and suffering. For example, both Jeremiah and Isaiah speak of the cup of wrath that God's about to pour out upon the wicked. And, and this, I think, is the picture Jesus is using here. He alluded to it earlier in the Gospels where two of his inner circle, James and John, had their mother approach him to ask a favor, that when you come in your kingdom, grant it, that one may sit on your left and one may sit on your right. You know what Jesus asked James and John at that point? Are you able to drink this cup? That is, you don't understand, the closer and more intimate you are with me, the more likely it is you're gonna suffer. And of course that was the case. And this is the kind of cup that Jesus is about to drink. He's about to drink the cup of God's wrath, which will cause him incredible suffering. And so the title of the message, Jesus takes the cup and giving the context of this passage, the kind of cup he takes, the content of the cup is wrath. Now clearly every human being experiences some level of suffering, but the cup that Jesus was referring to here is something that, that we can't truly relate to because we're not God, only Jesus is perfect. And in his perfect holiness, and by the way, his holiness didn't begin on planet earth. He's the eternal second person of the Trinity. He has always been eternally perfect and holy and had perfect fellowship with the Father. And in his omniscience, what he saw is at the cross, God the Father was going to treat him as if he had done all sins. And Jesus had never experienced anything but perfect fellowship with the Father. And I think that is the root cause of his agony. Now, I said earlier that many people are tripped up or confused or even troubled by Jesus' prayer that if you are willing, remove this cup from me because uh, they don't like to think of Jesus as struggling. They like to think of him in perfect control over every situation. And so they ask sometimes questions about this text. Now, now wait a second. Isn't this the reason that Jesus came? Pastor Keith always says the reason Jesus was born was for this moment so that he could take on the sins of the world. Is that true? Yes, that is true. Did Jesus not know as God in the flesh that he would be resurrected on the third day, that death could not hold him and the grave could not keep him? Yes, he knew that. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and suffered the shame. 
But here's the third question we need to ask. Did Jesus in his humanity repulse at the idea of what the next three days held? Yes, he did. There were two heresies in the first century church that had to be dealt with quickly and we're still dealing with them today. The first heresy is that Jesus wasn't altogether God, that he was either a prophet or a man or some lesser emanation of deity, but he was not God. Now that was dealt with and we continue to deal with it. The other end of the spectrum also is a heresy, which is that Jesus is not fully man, that he only appears to be man. But the Bible says that Jesus is altogether God and altogether man. And we can only say of Jesus, he is the God man. Now we don't say he's half God and half man. That would diminish his deity and that would diminish his humanity. By the way, if you wanna learn more about this, Last summer in our systematic theology class we did online, lessons two and three are on Christology. Go back and listen to that again. But the primary point I tried to make last summer is that Jesus has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, and neither does violence against the other. That is, his deity doesn't diminish the fact that he's altogether human, and his humanity doesn't diminish the fact that he's altogether God. And so don't let this passage upset you. This is Jesus in his humanity, pouring out his heart in anticipation of what the next three days held. That is the content of the cup, the wrath of God against sin. Secondly, let's look at the necessity of the cup. Now, I want to attempt to answer the question why Jesus had to suffer and die. Because there are those even claiming to be Christians, some claiming to be evangelical seminary professors, who don't believe that Jesus necessarily needed to die. In fact, they try to diminish and tamp down any talk of the blood atonement because it seems unnecessarily violent to them and against what they believe to be the nature of God. Three years ago, our Southern Baptist Convention issued a position paper in which we affirmed as a denomination the necessity of the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. I'm grateful for that. But amazingly that we had to do it because that's what biblical Christianity has taught for 2000 years. So let's try to answer the question, why did Jesus have to suffer? What is the necessity of the cup? Well, there are many passages in scripture we could go in the Bible that point out the need for the blood atonement going all the way back to the book of Genesis. And I considered reading some of them, in fact, dozens of them to you to make the point but instead, I think we'll just look at one passage a little more thoroughly, which is a summary, I believe, of all the others. It's in Romans chapter three. So turn with me there, please, to Romans chapter three. Now, Lord willing, beginning next August, we're gonna engage in a verse-by-verse -verse study on Sunday morning through the book of Romans. I've never taught through the book of Romans on a Sunday morning. I'm very much looking forward to it, but you probably know that the theme and the treatise of Paul's letter to the Romans is the doctrine of justification. How is it that man who's a sinner can be made right with a holy God? And you might think, well, by keeping the law. Of course, that's what Paul thought a good portion of his adult life until he was saved. He said of himself, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And you know that the Pharisees were meticulous keepers of the law because they thought by keeping the law, they could please God. Paul says he wasn't just a Pharisee in that regard. He was what? A Pharisee of the Pharisee. 
He was more legalistic than anybody you ever met until he came face to face with true holiness on the road to Damascus. He saw the risen Lord Jesus and in a second, his dependence on his own goodness melted away and he realized he could never be good enough to spend eternity with such a holy God. And for the rest of his life, he preached fervently and it did cost him his life eventually, this doctrine of justification which is summarized in what he says in Ephesians, that salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So let's read Romans 3, 21 through 26, which summarizes very succinctly why Jesus had to die. Paul writes, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, highlight or underline, circle that word propitiation. That's a word we don't use a lot in our English language today. It's a good word, it means satisfaction. So you might write up parenthetically above that word satisfaction. So Jesus in some way, he says, made satisfaction through his blood. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus had to die, he says, so God's nature could show itself to be true so that he may receive glory, that he is a just judge and yet a justifier of all who put faith in Christ. That is, he's both just and merciful at the same time. Now let's just walk through these points together. Number one, this tells us God has warned us and made our guilt obvious through the law. Now it's also the law of the tablets that Moses wrote down, but Paul here in this book of Romans says that he's written that law upon every heart. We are born knowing that God has standards. And when we violate God's law, that's called sin, isn't it? And so what is the purpose of the law? Well, it's obviously not to save us. In fact, the law is what condemns us, Paul says. The purpose of the law, Paul says here in Romans, is to expose our sin. I often compare it to a mirror for the soul. I use this illustration to the point I know you're tired of it, but it's a good one, so I'm gonna use it again. You go out into your garden in the summer, it's July, it's hot. You stay out there all day, you wipe the sweat off of your brow, you smear mud all over your face, you come in at the end of the day, you look in the mirror in your bathroom and you say, wow, you need a bath. Now that mirror reveals to you how desperately you need to be clean but that mirror has absolutely no ability to clean you. That's the law. Spiritually, the law shows us how desperately sinful we are and in need of a savior, and it points to Jesus, but the law saves no one. Paul says, by the law will no flesh be justified. So how can God be just and a justifier? So he speaks here of God's nature. First of all, he talks about God's mercy. He says that in times past, he has passed over our sin. In fact, in the Jewish faith, 
as we saw a couple of weeks ago, they have a feast once a year called the Passover. And it literally reminds them of that time in Egypt where they applied the blood of a spotless lamb to their doorpost and God literally passed over and death did not visit that house. Of course, all of that was leading to the once for all sacrifice to the Lord Jesus. But the point is, it's God's nature to give opportunity after opportunity to repent. He's long suffering, he's forbearing. The scripture says he's slow to anger. But unfortunately, because God is slow to anger, many millions of people through the centuries have presumed upon the grace of God. That is, they believe because he has not judged my sin yet, he will never judge my sin. And that, dear friends, is wrong because God is also just. When we think of just or justice, we think of a court of law. And I use this illustration with small children when I'm sharing the gospel with them. They understand that there are certain people in our country who are appointed as judges and their job is to enforce the law. And I'll ask a child, now what if a judge never enforces the law? Every guilty person that stands before him, he says, I'll forget about it. Don't worry about it. Would that be a good judge? And even little children say, no, that's a horrible judge. They understand that a judge's job is to enforce the law and to bring about justice where there is none. And when a judge is corrupt, it, it offends us, or it should, because that's his job. But unbelievably, the perfect righteous judge, God the creator who knows everything perfectly, doesn't need a lawyer to convince him of anything. He knows it inherently. We don't think that he has the right to execute justice. But he not only has that right, he is compelled to do that because that's who he is. He is just, but he's also a justifier. That is, he's merciful and slow to anger. So how can those two things exist in the same place? It's, it's similar to the natures of Jesus. How can a divine nature and a human nature exist in the same person? Well, it's unbelievable to us, but it's what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't try to explain away that tension. In fact, the, the Bible indicates that at the cross, the mercy of God and the justice of God kissed. Now take from that is they weren't battling one another. They were working in perfect harmony together. And this is what Jesus accomplished at the cross and why he had to die is so that God's justice could be satisfied, propitiated, and he could continue to be a God of mercy and grace. So that is the necessity of the cup. In other words, what happened at the cross is that Jesus drank the cup of God's just wrath that we richly deserved. And it is a weighty cup indeed. That's our final point, the weightiness of the cup. I was reading in my Bible reading this week about when God instituted the old covenant. And he gave very specific instructions about how the tabernacle was to be constructed and he gave very specific instructions about the utensils that were to be used. And they had to be forged from precious metals. And I can imagine those bowls and those cups that were used in the Old Testament sacrificial system must have been incredibly heavy. And I thought to myself that the weightiest cup that anyone's ever forged here on planet Earth must have been feather light compared to the cup that Jesus held that day. The cup of God's wrath. How do we know 
that it was uh, heavy. Because the scripture says here in Luke 22 that he was in agony. Now that word agony there is, is, is not just pain. Um, you've probably had the experience of hitting your thumb with a hammer when tacking up a picture on the wall. It's not pleasant. It throbs intensely for a few seconds and then it diminishes. That's not the word here. The Bible says he was in constant agony. He was weighted down and burdened by the agony of taking on the sins of the world. Verse 44, being in agony, a constant state. And in the midst of that agony, the scripture says he prayed very fervently. Now, I don't know the editors of the New American Standard English Bible, but I know that when I was in school, if I turned in a paper to my professor and I used the word very to describe something this important, it had been 10 point deduction right away. Now, we know what very means. It's an intensifier, in this case, of the word prayer. But in the Greek language, by the way, which was, of course, what the New Testament was originally written in, they didn't use the word very. It was not a separate word. It was a prefix that was added to the noun to intensify it. And the prefix that is used here is incredibly vivid. There's prayer and there's prayer. This is prayer. It's an intense sort of all-encompassing prayer where all the faculties of the mind and the body are brought to bear. This was the kind of praying that the Lord was doing. And, and it was so intense emotionally that it caused him to have a physical response. Verse 44, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now, there's debate among theologians as to whether this was a literal blood. There is a documented condition in which human beings can be under such extreme stress mentally and emotionally that the body reacts by blood vessels bursting in and around the head. And there's a $5 word for that, but I would mispronounce it, but just take my word for it. And, and sometimes that mingles with sweat and it gives a red appearance to the perspiration. That likely could have been what happened here. We don't know for sure because he uses the word like, which is a metaphor. His sweat became like drops of blood. I think he's speaking there less of the color of it than the amount of it. You know, when you cut yourself severely, it comes out pretty rapidly. And if you're holding your arm down and it's bleeding, it drips like rain sometimes. And that I take as a picture of Jesus. He's sweating so profusely that it uh, makes his garments completely wet to the point where he's just dripping upon the ground. That, that's agony. That's emotional suffering. And that's what Jesus was going through there night, that night. There's a little aside here. I failed to read verse 43, you might have noticed. I want to go back to that now. This portion is not in any of the other three Gospels, only here in Luke. But it's true. Verse 43, now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Strengthening him. There's only two times that I can recall in the New Testament where angels ministered to Jesus. One was after his wilderness temptation. Remember, after he was baptized, he went out in the wilderness to fast and pray, and he was attempted by Satan three times to sin. And each time he rebutted Satan with scripture. And at the end of that period, 
He was strengthened and angels ministered to him. Now he is on the other bookend of his ministry, the end of his life, when he is going through this agonizing time in the garden, God sends angels again to minister to him. I think that tells us some things about God's care and love for his own. Remember I said that all of us eventually will go through some pain and suffering and emotional difficulties in our life. And it may seem that God has abandoned us and forgotten us, but haven't you found that God sends a word of encouragement at just the right moment? I was talking to someone this week about ministry and he used the phrase with me. I said, how's it going? He said, I'm staying in the saddle, (laughs) which tells me he's tempted to get off the horse. And we began to talk about the trouble he was going through in his church. And I reminded him when we used to play golf together. I haven't played golf in 10 or 12 years for one reason, I'm terrible. And uh, I have found much less expensive ways to humiliate myself publicly. (laughs) But I used to play with my past friends quite often and I was really bad, I'm not exaggerating. But even I, a terrible golfer, at least one time in 18 holes, hits a good shot. And sometimes it comes at just the right time. I remember years ago, I was playing with a pastor friend of mine and he was an excellent golfer. He was beating me by 20 strokes. And we finally made it to the 18th hole, which led up to the clubhouse. So there were people out in the area there eating their lunch and watching the two of us on our approach shot on the last hole. And I wound up and I hit a shot, first one of the day, right down the middle, 300 yards, within 80 yards of the hole. And I took a pitching wedge and I pitched it up within three feet of the hole. And then I walked up confidently and I putted it in for a birdie. Not only the only birdie of the day, maybe the only birdie of the month for me. (laughs) And my friend who was a scratch golfer yanked his into the woods in front of all these spectators. And you know what I did? I walked up and I leaned down and I picked up my ball didn't celebrate, put it in my bag and walked off like I'd been doing that all day long. (laughs) The the point is this, just when you need encouragement, God sends it. Now I came back and played again the next week because maybe I can do that twice next time instead of once. There are times when all of us are gonna get frustrated and ready to quit and ready to resign and ready to go live for the devil. But if you're a child of God, he will give you encouragement at the moment. Maybe not an angel, maybe. Remember what the scripture says, some of you entertain angels unaware. Maybe you thought it was just a random person who gave you that word of encouragement. It might have been a messenger from the Lord. He loves you that much and he certainly loved Jesus enough to give him that encouragement at his greatest hour of need. And we, we could stop right there. I think we could go home and be encouraged, but if we did, we will have missed, I think, the most important verse, and that's verse 45. It says, when he arose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. When he arose from prayer. Now, there is a, there is a way in which we are to always be praying. Paul says, pray without ceasing. But Jesus asked the Father a very specific question. If you're willing, remove this cup from me. It's translated in other passages, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And I take it that Jesus got a very specific answer from the Father through his night of prayer. And the answer was no. 
We just saw why it was necessary for Jesus to die the way he did. It was because of our sinfulness and God's justice. And so there was no other way. And when that answer came, Jesus arose with confidence. The sweating is over. He's ready now to face his accusers. And he comes to the gate. And as we're going to see next week in verse 47, he's going to find Judas there. And never again do we find Jesus agonizing in prayer. Now, he does say on the cross, why have you forsaken me? But he was quoting scripture at that point. He understood that this was the will of the Father and he was ready to face it. And yet his last thought was not of himself and the suffering he was about to endure. It was of his disciples. Isn't that the way with Jesus? He was always teaching. Remember I said he brought them into the garden. He knew that they couldn't participate. They couldn't even relate to his holiness. He had to drink this cup alone, but he wanted them to be close enough to see a stone's throw away. This is how you face tribulation. This is how you face temptation. It's, it's on your knees. It's through fervent prayer surrounded by those who believe as you do. And now one more time on the other end of that, he asked them again, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now that phrase, lead us not into temptation in the Lord's Prayer, used to confuse me when I was young. Um, sounds like we have to ask God not to tempt us. And yet the book of James says God is not tempted, neither does he tempt. So that can't be what it means. And so when he, pray, he says here, pray that you enter not in temptation, he's not saying pray that you won't be tempted. That's part of life. All of us are going to be tempted and we're tempted multiple times a day, every day on the calendar. What it means to enter into temptation is to succumb to temptation. Really to be overwhelmed by temptation. Now Jesus' temptation of course here is to turn and run, but he faces it and doesn't give in to that temptation. And they're gonna be faced with different things in their life. And the way to face that is through prayer but ask the Father in that prayer that you not enter that temptation. What frightens you most of all? Is it that you'd be persecuted or have to suffer for the Lord Jesus in some way? Or is it that you would not be willing to suffer for the Lord Jesus? That's what he means. Pray that you'd not be overwhelmed by the temptation so that whatever the Father calls you to do, you accomplish it. And this is what Jesus does. He gets up from prayer and he goes to the gate and he faces the mob. Well, friends, what about you? Before we go today, I think it's incumbent upon me to ask you, have you appropriated this blood covering that Jesus provided in your own life? You say, how do I do that? What do I have to do to be saved? That's what the Philippian jailer asked Paul. The good news is you don't have to do anything. See, that's the difference between biblical Christianity and every other ism in the world. The isms of the world say you got to do this, go here, give this, and then maybe if things work out well, you can go to heaven. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So he said in the book of Ephesians when he said, salvation is by grace, which means a gift, through faith. It's appropriated by faith. Faith is simply believing the promises of God are true. 
And his promises are like this. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Remember, the law can't cleanse you. It just shows you you need to be cleansed. The only thing that can cleanse you is the blood of Jesus, which is appropriated through simple childlike faith. And if you're here today and you're not saved, you can be. Recognize Jesus' assessment of you is correct. Recognize that the all of Romans 3.23, all have sins, includes you. And you are guilty before a righteous judge who must judge sins. And you will be judged on your own sins or Jesus will take your sins upon himself. Those are the only two opportunities. Trust in what Jesus did or face the justice of God for all of eternity. Friend, I call upon you today. Despair of any perceived righteousness you have. Do as Paul did. Count your righteousness as filthy rags. Run to Jesus, cling to the cross, bow your knee to his lordship, and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Father, we see in these few verses the humanity and the deity of Jesus on display. And Father, rather than being troubled, we ought to be encouraged that our God condescended to become like us in the flesh, tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. He accomplished everything you had for him to accomplish. There's nothing lacking. He fulfilled all righteousness. Father, I thank you that you sustain him through ministering angels and you sustain us through your word and through fellowship. Father, I pray you'd bring encouragement into someone's life today who's ready to dismount the horse of ministry and get out of the saddle. Maybe some pastor or Sunday school teacher, maybe some wife who's ready to forsake her commitments to a marriage. Father, help us to endure as Jesus did through prayerfulness and by being surrounded by believers. I pray for one who's withdrawn from the fellowship who may be listening tonight. I pray, Father, that they reconnect with their Sunday school class and with those who love them. Father, I pray especially, though, for anyone who's in the sound of my voice who knows you not. They've been depending upon their own perceived goodness or something they can do to earn heaven. And Father, we've seen today that's a fool's errand. The law can't save. It only shows us how dirty we are. It's impossible that we could do enough good deeds to outweigh our sins. And so it was necessary that the second person of the Trinity would leave the glories of heaven and condescend to take on human flesh, live a perfect life so that he could go and be qualified to take our sins upon himself. Thank you, Father, for that divine plan. Thank you, Father, that you were willing to crush your son so that we might be redeemed. And thank you, Jesus that you were willing to go to the cross and die in our place. And Jesus said, no greater love is any man than he'd lay down his life for his friends. Thank you, Lord, that we are now the friends of Jesus through faith in him. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, Visit us online at fbckeller.org.